Today's a sermon is titled, Happy Through Repentance. Psalm 32. I'm going to read. It says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This is where we're going to stop for today. Please be seated. Um, hopefully you can hear me now. I've grown a bit rusty on this front too. That's good. Um, so this Psalm, just like this, the last two Psalms that you guys covered with me, uh, Psalm one and Psalm two is still talking about happiness. Um, the last Psalm we saw, uh, the first time we saw was Psalm one. Um, first of all, both of these taught us about the blessed existence or the happy situation in which a believer finds themselves. Psalm 1 taught us, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, is what David was teaching us in Psalm 1. So like delighting and meditating on the law of God, which leads to a transformed life is what David preaches in that song, uh, which in turn leads to success in all uh, you do and happiness. I'm just going to grab this. All right. Sorry about that. So Psalm 1 was teaching us all these things. So uh, David is saying, you meditate on the law of God, and then you succeed in all you do because of the instruction of the Lord according to His law. And this is what the transformed life or the blessed life looks like. And in turn, this leads to success in everything as well as happiness that comes both from succeeding in life, from getting the goodness of God to work for us, as well as from being in a good relationship with God, or from being in an eternal stance that is joyful, unending, blessed. Psalm 2 taught us, blessed are those who take refuge in the Son of God. Faith in Christ, David taught us in Psalm 2, makes a person happy, because Jesus is going to return to judge the earth, and he's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And the nations are going to be no more. There is going to be a time of judgment, and beyond that, only the righteous will dwell in the land. So, blessed, happy, there's this eternal connection to happiness for David in, in all Psalms, that happy is the person who is rescued from that perishing, from that judgment, who takes refuge in the Son Himself, in the Judge Himself, in the Savior Himself, right? By this point, we can have a sense of happiness then that is different from what the world is preaching to us, right? The world could even preach to you the kind of happiness you could have by bullying others, the kind of happiness that you can have by putting down other people and gaining something for yourself. 
God says that's no way to be happy. It might work for now, but it won't. The world preaches happiness in sin, happiness in things that destroy us and others, happiness in disobedience to God, happiness in, well, defiance of the Creator. And also, we realize happiness is beyond this world that we know as we know it today. Happiness is everlasting happiness has no end the human soul is meant to live forever sadly that's not an automatic there is such a thing as eternal death and eternal life and apart from eternal life happiness is like a fleeting pleasure in 70 years it's over for some of us in two days for some of us in a few years Yes, sir. So we're talking about happiness in the context of eternity, happiness beyond what we know to be the world. And then Psalm 32 is no different. And by God's providence, we're there. With that reminder, let's get into Psalm 32. Blessed sorry, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, says David. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. There are three like phrases that are not common in society today, right? That David says in these places. Someone's transgression is forgiven transgression is even the word that we don't use much uh, if at all whose sin is covered that doesn't come up in your conversation with your friends i'm pretty sure and whose iniquity is not counted is phrases that we may not be familiar with so we just got to look at them a little bit transgression is an act against a law or a rule or a conduct. It's an offense. That's what transgression is. Forgiven transgression literally means in this psalm, a transgression that is carried by another, a, transger- a transgression that is lifted from our head, from us being responsible for it, for, from, for us, from us being guilty for it. Of transgression that's taken away that's what the literal meaning of that word forgiven means so you have that first phrase taken care of sin on the other hand is a bit of a complex idea sin is used in so many contexts starting from the old testament all the way to the end of the bible in revelations so that it's a very complex idea so I'm, I'm going to try to give you a couple of pictures of what sin is like, and I'm going to give you a kind of definition that helps you see the whole picture a little bit. The word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia. Uh, this means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. Missing the target with an arrow, right? You probably have games that are like that. Dart is one of them or video games, I don't know, but it's just to miss what you aim to hit with an arrow. Uh, In our society, you might be like, wait, that is an odd way to describe sin. Like, how does that work in everyday life? Everybody tells you nobody's perfect. You say that to anybody and be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Nobody's perfect. And we mean by like way different things by saying that phrase. But what we're saying is, there's such a thing as perfect. There's such a thing as what we ought to be, but nobody meets that target. Nobody does. We all do evil. We all do things contrary to what we know to be the right thing to do. That's sin. Right? And the second picture that you could see from that archery term, there's another one. The better way to describe sin is instead of trying to figure out what is sin, let's try to ask the question, what sin is not? Which is an odd thing to say, but sin is not a real thing. 
that exists in God's created order. God did not create sin. Therefore, it's not like a chair. It's not like you and me. It's not created. I know, complex. But it's an act that comes to pass as sinners behave contrary to what is right, what is real, what is good. And so this sin comes from a sin nature, and it's a spiritual condition in which when we act it out, it contradicts God's given order, God's will, God's created order. The best place to see this idea is in John 8, 44, when Jesus speaks to a bunch of Jews who believed in his name, but eventually decide to kill him because they did not like the things that he was saying about them. He was telling them, you are slaves of sin. He was telling them, if you know the truth, you'll be free. They did not like that a little bit at all. They ended up even saying, you have a demon, right, who desires to kill you. In John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are, to them, of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, which is to kill Jesus in this particular circumstance. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you can see the origin of sin itself, the devil, right? How it, it, it gets generated. There are two things that we see, right? This desire to murder, to destroy anyone in our way, to get our way, basically. And this speaking out of our own inventions is like fiction, right? We create a reality, an alternative reality that does not exist. It's like the games that we play. Like when you're immersed in them, they actually feel like a real world. Or the social media that you get into, when you're talking to people over social media, it feels like it's real. But so many people are pretending to be somebody else. I mean, you cannot find a single picture without a filter. Which means, by definition, that world is not real. And games, obviously, are not real, right? But it feels like that. So it's, it's a generated thing. It's not God's created reality. It's not truth-based. It's not something that we can get true feedback from, we can learn from. Sin is what comes about when we follow the will of the devil who is inventing lies and convincing us that it's truth. And by definition, humans would not want to go that way if they knew how destructive and counterproductive it is. So we kind of define sin in, in these two pictures, where it's we see what it's not, and also we try to see it from a, an archery term that is used in the New Testament. Uh, if you give, if you ask me one sentence that could define sin, or give us a summary at least, a fair bit, sin is preferring anything more than God, right? Sin is doing anything more than, I mean, against God's will in that sense. If you think something is more important, more more worthy than God in your life, then you have sin. But then David is saying sin is covered for this blessed person. It means it's made whole. It's actually filled. Instead of this virtual fake reality, it's instead of this intent to kill, to destroy God's created order, what we do by destroying, by lying, and by creating our own fake reality, God replaces with a real thing. God pardons that and gives us still a real life, kind of forgets what happened in the past. He allows our violation, as, our violation of his truth and his created order and still gives us truth, still gives us life, still gives us direction, right? That's what kind of blessedness he's talking about. So blessed and happy is the one whose offense, whose transgression is carried by another. It's lifted from it being a burden to us. It's 
taken away from destroying our lives, whose missed target is hit by another. We have sin, so therefore what we do is evil. We miss the target. We say nobody's perfect and do the worst thing possible and continue to do it without remorse. We're at, like the, the psalmist is telling us in this place, no, there was one that did the right thing on your behalf. The one that lived a perfect life on your behalf. Whose life of lie, our life of lie, is replaced with truth. Whose preference, this blessed person, whose preference of, of like other things above God is replaced by a wholehearted devotion to God, which by now you understand what I'm talking about, Jesus did on our behalf. He lived the perfect life. He served and preferred God and God alone on our behalf. That's why he came in the body, that he may fulfill the law on our behalf. So blessed is the person who believes in Christ and whose sins are forgiven. There is no guilt that is being counted against him. And that's the last word we need to pay attention to. Verse 2 says the Lord, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The Lord is the proper name of God, Yahweh. Or to Moses he says, I am who I am. That's how God tells us his name. He's unchanging, he's holy, nobody can compare to him. He cannot say, I'm like that, I'm like him or I'm like her. He has to say to you, I am who I am. He doesn't cease to exist. He didn't come into existence. There is no comparison. That's the name we're talking about. His covenant name to his people. But that idea of iniquity is basically defined as guilt, right? Which makes sense from the word itself. Guilt from sin. Iniquity is not just guilt. It's also the punishment that we deserve for our guilt. And David is saying in this place, that is not counted against this blessed person. In Genesis, uh, and that idea where it says, in whose spirit there is no deceit, that idea of the spirit is translated as wind or breath. In Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, the Bible tells us. That's what we're talking about. Man is nothing, even after being formed by God's hands, but clay, until God breathes spirit into him. Until God breathes into him, he doesn't become a living creature. He doesn't do nothing. He doesn't move. He's basically a statue. So we're talking about the inner being of a person when we talk about in whose spirit. We're not talking about the clay, the body that you see right here. We're not talking about appearances that you perceive from who you think I am. I can deceive you. I can smile at you every time I see you. I can speak nice things to you and you would think I'm your best friend just to turn around and get my way with you. While I hate you, while I'm preparing to destroy you, I can do that. We do that every day as humans. We're not talking about that, per that part of a person that humans see. We're talking about the inner part that only God sees. Only God gave us that part. So he's talking about deceit at that core level of who a human, what a human being is. So happy is the man against whom Yahweh does not think or account guilt. And because of this, because this person's 
transgression and sin and iniquity are taken care of by Christ, this person is completely free to be who they are from within, outwardly, especially in front of God. They don't have to pretend. They don't have to lie. They don't have to fake it. They just can go with it. So the statement goes, happy is the man against whom Yahweh does not think or account guilt or iniquity and in whose breath or inner being there is no cunning intelligence or deceit. This double-faced reality, the person is another and what they pretend to be like is another, which we all, because of our fallenness, are forced to be someone else. Especially if I followed you around and saw how you behaved in different circumstances. I mean, if I just recorded you and gave you the whole day's video and said, how do you see yourself? What do you like? If I followed you around for a week, that would be crazy. Like, I would just ask you without judging you at all. How do you see yourself in different circumstances? How do you present yourself? You would see a huge variation in that. That's because of our fallenness. But then ever since we came to Christ, that fallenness, that double-faced reality kind of gets destroyed by the truth. It gets less and less sneaky. We are more truthful. We are more excited to tell the truth. We're more excited to love others. We're more excited to present ourselves as we really are inside, no matter how hard it is. That's what a Christian or the blessed person is like. Therefore, the happy person is free from offense because it's taken away or carried for them. That person's missed mark is hit for them. Their guilt is truly they are guilty. But God counts none of their guilt or punishment for their guilt. Therefore, this person is not deceitful in their inner being. What you see is what you get with them. This person represents themselves in the same way in the sight of God who sees the heart as well as in the sight of man. And for themselves even, they don't have this split personality that they're struggling with. They have one personality, one person. They don't have to be a slave to pleasing others. They can just be themselves at whatever consequence because they are forgiven. I mean, let's pause and think for a minute. Let, let's ask the typical everyday life questions that we ask or the way we think in the 21st century. Most people might be thinking, and I'm not saying it to you, including me, most people might think, what are you talking about? I did not know any of these things and I am happy. Like, it doesn't matter. Or, I don't see how this would make me happy. I mean, I can see how getting out of this room to do whatever I want would make me happy. But this, really? Like, God's forgiveness for a sin I didn't even think about or for definitions that I didn't even know that you just gave me today. I'm not saying this is what you're saying in your mind. I'm saying if you investigated your life, how you react to what God reveals to you as being true and good and life-giving and gives you joy, it's kind of like that, right? We listen to a sermon, we, we may not even remember it an hour later. But I'm not trying to be gloomy here. Or you could say, I'm good. This, is, this does not seem like something I need to do. Yeah, Personally, like, you could tell it to anyone, but me, I'm good. Or, good thing I'm forgiven through my faith in Christ. I'm done. I'm a Christian. What are you talking about? Like, this is talking about justification 
by the works that Christ has fulfilled, it's over. Like, come on, man. I've already confessed my sins and believe in Christ. It's done for me. Amen. Thank God you are a believer and you are forgiven in Christ. And I really want you to know that. And it's my hope, and this preaching is all about that, that you may truly know how blessed you are, that you are forgiven. Your transgression and sin and iniquity is not a problem in front of God. But then I turn around and ask you, are you happy? <laughs> Are you doing God's will? Do you even know God's will? Are you now perfect to do the perfect will of God? Is your conscience clear? Do you not feel guilty? Somebody, somebody comes and accuses you, you're like, no, I'm good. God is good with me. I don't need anybody else to tell me whether I'm good or not. Is that you? In fact, it's not just for me. Even if you repent, you'll be good with God. Is that you? Do you feel no guilt in your life? So that's where the gap is. It's not that I'm saying what Christ has done for you means nothing. Guys, I'm about to move you. Now, you guys. Thank you. But the happy person is exactly like I just described. They're free of guilt. They're not gripped by sin. They're not controlled by their transgressions. They're not deceitful in their heart. They're free before God and before men. That's what happiness David is describing. And they don't believe they're good. This person is not prideful or self-righteous. That's not the point. They believe in the completed work of Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. They truly believe it in everyday life. It gives them freedom and joy and future and hope. It gives them this single-hearted personality where they don't have to deceive others or be enslaved to others. So David is asking the question, is your conscience clear? Happy is the person whose conscience does not bother them. To this, he goes deeper and goes into the psalm. But before that, I just want you to, to know something. David is talking about something very profound and big. This person that he calls blessed is a transgressor, a sinner, and a guilty person in front of God. This is by definition everyone. This is, there is no exception to this one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's one good summary for all of us. There's more vivid pictures in the scripture of how wicked the human heart is, both as a nation and as an individual. No, the happiness is not coming from this person being exceptionally good. No, it's not. The good news or the happiness comes from the fact that he has been preaching to us a promise of God, this ideal life that God promises to his saints, to the Christian. By definition, this is the only thing that makes a true believer happy. He's talking about what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's talking about what it means to trust in the completed work of Christ. So far, he's not talking about what you did, or can do, but what God has done and does for you in Christ. 
the one who takes away our offense or transgression by paying for it with his life is Christ. Transgression in front of God, you die. I hope you know that. Sin in front of God, you die forever. Christ died on our behalf is what that's what the scriptures preach to us. The one who hit the mark, the one who lived a perfect life, the one who didn't, nobody's perfect. That's not true. Jesus is perfect. He actually lived in the same way that we live without sin. He's perfect. That's why we are followers of Christ. Those who imitate the perfect one. We don't live by just saying, nobody's perfect, so whoop-dee-doo, I'm just going to do the same thing like everybody. No. He has done it for us. And not only that, not only do we follow him, we have happiness and freedom because that righteousness, that perfection is counted for us before God. That's what Romans 4 was teaching us today. Jesus is the one who received the wrath of God for our guilt. We were guilty. Jesus got punished for it. The anger of God was propitiated by the crucifixion of Christ. We are blessed and happy because of who Christ is, what Christ has, son, has done and suffered on our behalf on the cross. This is what the psalmist is preaching. So now you know there is nothing you can do. God does it all. Our struggle is to believe it. Our struggle is to receive it by faith. Our struggle is for it to materialize in our lives. Faith does not mean this just ascent in, in your mind. Faith actually means a life-transforming reality. Belief. So in the current condition, you can see that you do not have these things in your life. So what's missing? If Christ has paid for you, if you're already a believer, if you truly believe all of these things that I just preached to you, and you're still struggling with sin and transgression and guilt, and there is still deceit in our lives, what's missing? Really, like, what's going on with us? If you say, I don't believe, like, nobody's a Christian who doesn't believe. To a degree, yeah, that makes sense, but you have faith if you're a Christian. What's going on? This is where David dives deep into the idea of like deceit and iniquity in the heart. For he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer, he says. What not to do? David teaches us from his life. David talks about what not to do when you see transgression, sin, and iniquity in your life. Guilt. David sees this happy, blessed existence that is available to us by God's promise. And there are two ways he responded to seeing the gap between the promise, the ideal, the perfection of Christ, who he didn't even meet or know about yet, and his own life. The first response is, I'm going to keep silent. He refused to admit his transgression, sin, and iniquity. This is called irrepentance. And this happens to all of us. So don't count yourself out. But David is saying, don't do it. No matter how tempting it is, don't do it. Actually, this doesn't just happen to believers, by the way. Non-believers go through this. Non-believers have to constantly justify sin as righteousness and good in order to survive because they cannot handle the stress that comes from it, the anarchy that comes from it, the breaking of the law they have to do, even the, the law of the land they have to do in their sin, they have to reconcile 
everybody speeds. So we're not going to put everybody in jail. We're just going to take the marginal criminal. So this is a problem for all of us. And David is saying, don't hide it. That's not the way a Christian ought to live. You are free. Live as free. It's a this is a refusal to, to admit like this sin, transgression, and iniquity. It's continuing in the path of disobedience. Sorry, it, it's it, it's the heart saying, "I don't have to answer new, to nobody." Like uh, I'm a person who controls my own life. Besides, if I pretend like nothing happened, nobody will know, and that is highly true unless. You truly understand your sin, transgression, and guilt actually wreak havoc throughout the world. You destroy your own life. You destroy the life of others. Something as simple as adultery destroys families, destroys children's future, destroys an entire nation, and creates all these broken things that we see around us, like wars. So even for my obvious sins, you could say, that everybody would see, nobody's perfect. So what's the problem with that? The problem is God is still a judge, a perfect one. He still expects believers, his children, to be different from the world. And he has given us his son and his spirit and his word that we may be different. We may be holy. We may be set apart. In Genesis 3, you see the fall. And in the fall, as soon as they sinned, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God comes and he says, where are you, Adam? I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I uh, commanded you not to eat? Have you transgressed against me? Have you sinned, Adam? Are you guilty right now? Adam is guilty here and God knows about it. You know who else knows? Eve and the devil know about it. And obviously, Adam knows about it and shows it by hiding in this place. So this is exactly how Adam responded to the first sin. And this is exactly how we all respond today. And despite all the technologies and the knowledge and whatever we think we have built up, we're actually getting worse at this. We're actually trying to redefine good as evil and evil as good in our society today. Instead of repenting turning back we're actually like you see this and say like adam really like you hide behind leaves from an all-knowing all-seeing god who's at all places at once that's very silly adam that's exactly what we're doing the god who gave you your inner being the god who breathed life into you who knows about what's happening in your heart what why would you hide behind a tree like he knows what's up. This is exactly how we respond to sin constantly. And with all the knowledge and the tech, nothing has changed. The problem, sin insults God. It ruins us and others as well as God's good creation. We cannot just gloss over it. It destroys our lives daily and makes it worse and worse and worse. And it has to be dealt with now and for eternity. Thankfully, God knows what's in our hearts. Nothing is hidden from him. And he is righteous judge who hates sin and transgression, who counts guilt and who prepares punishment for every guilt, depending on how severe or simple the guilt is, right? There's an exact punishment for everything we do according to God's word. So what happened to David? He hid his sin. He says, 
the first thing that happened to me is my bones wasted away. He's talking about a decay of the bones, wearing out of the bones. The human bones, they stay for like 20 to 80 years buried in the ground. Like strong, kind of. Saying I'm alive and I feel like my bones that are supposed to support my body are like a twig. They're just useless. They're just a burden to me instead of a support. Why? Because he could not stop but groan all day. Non-stop groaning is what he's talking about. He could not rest for his minute. A minute. His conscience will not let him be. He couldn't just be like everyone else. He couldn't just lie and cheat and just feel nothing and move on with his life. And that's how we all are as believers. We can no longer just do whatever we wanted to do like before and get away with it. Our conscience, the spirit of God, the word of God constantly like today, right? You're here and you're actually examining your life based on what the scripture is talking and communicating through this psalm. That's what the Christian life is like. And you can say, you know what? I would rather avoid sermons, reading the Bible, you know, and then the spirit is there and then your conscience is there. You just can't get away with it. That's what David is giving us a picture of. It just makes me groan. It's like he just keeps sighing and roaring as the, the words translation here. Because of this pain that he feels not in his body. That's not the problem. In his inner being. In his spirit. In who he is inside. In his consciousness. But why is he groaning? Like, is it because David is like this amazing spiritual person? David says this, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Because day and night God's hand was upon David. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, David says. This is a picture of usually like in the, in the Old Testament, when you see the hand of God, the right hand of God is what you say when you believe God helped you. When the hand of God is upon you, that's a whole different expression. It means God is against you. And you cannot overcome Him. David is describing a second picture to us. The reason that David is groaning is because the hand of God is upon him. So David is not groaning out of the goodness of his heart. If you really understand what we have been talking today, it's not out of the goodness of our hearts that we got to this point. It's because the scripture, God's grace through the scripture is revealing to us, you are in this condition, believer, brothers and sisters, including me, right? Know that you should not hide your true identity, where you constantly struggle with sin in your life. So David pictures this as being a burden pressed down against him, as the hand of God being against him. He says, it was heavy upon me. It's like this unstopping, unceasing weight upon him. And so that it's so weighty that his bones that are supposed to support his body feel like they're gone. They're like decayed. It feels like he's been buried for years and years and his, his bones cannot support his body anymore. Feels it in his physical existence is what he's talking about. But it's not just a physical problem. It's deeper than that. It's a spiritual problem. My strength was dried up, he says, as he ends the verse. The picture is God turned upside down David's strength. Or that word strength in its literal meaning is just moisture. You know how like water pressure keeps plants upright? The human body is composed of a lot of water. So like with hydration we feel alive we feel energetic we feel excited we can do so much when you're dehydrated you're exhausted you don't even have ambition so all you want is water to feel like yourself so he's comparing it this 
sense. He's giving us a picture to relate it to, to dehydration. Not only that, he says, as in the heat of summer, he's comparing it to also uh, heat exhaustion, right? So dehydration is basically an imbalance of water in your body, which also tends to imbalance sugars and salts in your body, which means your body is just not at its optimum. Not even to think, let alone to do anything. Add to that heat exhaustion, which is a severe case, which also is accompanied by dehydration. If you've ever suffered from it, you probably know what it is. It's not easy to replenish quickly. So he's, it's, it's, that's the condition that I am in now that I've been hiding my sin and my iniquity and my transgression, he says. So this way, David's entire body is useless. So just like when you lose strength in your body and have no ability or desire to do anything when you're dehydrated and heat exhaustion is upon you, that's the spiritual condition of a person who hides their sin. Let me read this. First Corinthians eleven thirty says this. This is why many of you are weak and ill. Some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves, he says, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned among, along with the world, he says. There is a sense in which if we don't judge ourselves, if we don't bring our iniquity before God and ask for forgiveness, we put ourselves at odds with God. And as children of God, we're not destroyed by it like the world. We're disciplined by it. And that's what David is experiencing. So from this point on, we can see what to do. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. There is this thing that says Selah and Selah in the Psalm here. It's like David is shifting from this amazing picture of this blessed person to, to transition to guys like I want you to be aware of naturally as humans, we tend to hide our sin and don't do it. And he takes us through this gruesome image of how painful it is to try to hide from God when you really cannot. Pretending like God is like just humans. There's a deceit in the heart. It's such a heavy picture of this bones wasting away and losing all of his energy. His energy turning upside down against himself. Like this inner being that God gave, it doesn't cooperate with you when you're trying to lie to God. When you're trying to hide your iniquity from God, it actually goes against you. It makes you groan all day long, he says. But then he takes another cellar. He just gives us relief from this picture that's so painful, that's so hard to reconcile. It's not something we like to think about. And he says, then I acknowledge my sin when I went through this. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. The second response, the, the right response, the immediate response, the response that we will learn over time to make it our only response is to acknowledge your sin. It's called repentance. And we are humbled to acknowledge our guilt. The heart is aligned with the confession before God and before man, mainly before God. Our heart is not harboring this fake reality or this other reality in relationship to what our mouth is saying. Remember, blessed or happy is the person in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why is there no deceit in this person's spirit? Because their sin, transgression, and iniquity are forgiven. They're carried by Christ. Their sin is lived perfectly by Christ, and His righteousness is given to this person. Their guilt is paid for in the wrath of God 
that was poured on Christ on the cross in Calvary. This person is free. This person doesn't have to pretend anything before God or man. That blessedness is what he's talking about. So confess so that you may reach there is what David is trying to say to us. So repentance is turning away from your sin and therefore an action, not just saying, I'm sorry and keeping on going. It's not like you come to church on Sunday every week and you say, Lord, sorry for everything I did. Or every night you bow down and say, Lord, sorry for everything I did. And then get up and keep doing it. That's, that's not repentance. And confession is the first act. It's not, confession is not, uh, sorry for everything. It's not. Confession is, Lord, this is what I did. Please forgive me. I've been a liar. I lied. I cheated. I did this. I did that. Forgive me. That's confession. That's putting into words what's in your heart, what you know to be wrong. Or else you're going to keep groaning because your conscience is not going to let you go. That's what David is talking about. It's such a beautiful picture, though. This is what God calls us to do. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. I know now my guilt is not up to me to cover. I can't cover it. Let's say I literally, I don't know, lie to somebody and their life is destroyed by my lie. Can I change what happened? No, I can't. Can I pay them back? No. Somebody kills somebody's son or daughter. You can't pay that back. You cannot. But God can. Christ can. So David says, I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to ask mercy from God, knowing that there's no way of hiding this. So he confesses it, literally. And right after the confession, God responds with mercy. He says, you forgive my iniquity, the iniquity of my sin, the guilt of my sin. So sin cannot be forgiven, as according to the scripture, without blood, without someone's life being shed on our behalf. Without Christ, sin is not forgivable. There is no freedom until God acts on our, in our favor and on our behalf and forgives us in Christ. Luke 24, Jesus says to his disciples, Luke 24, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this exposition that we're going through, this, that thus it is written, he says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Christ must die. He must suffer so that we may be forgiven. All of us, all of the nations of the world, beginning from Jerusalem, the city, the saints of God believe in this and live in humble dependence on God's grace through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Not only when, the, when we first believe, it's like, oh, I did that. It's over. Yeah, I'm good from then on. No. But daily, as the Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we grow more sensitive to sin as we mature and are more and more dependent on Christ's completed work when we are more and more sensitive to sin. You could ask, this seems easy, why wouldn't we all do it? Because, just like I said, it's not what we do. It's, not, it's what God has done for us. All we could do is admit to our guilt. Admit to our sin. Admit to our iniquity. That's what God advises to us. Do not try to hide anything inside. Bring it forward, knowing you can neither change it, nor you can you cover it from God. Bring it forward. That's all we can do. Plead for mercy. 
is all we can do. Trust in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Knowing that if we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us. Because it's already been paid for 2,000 years ago. Completely. It is finished. There is not one sin, one iniquity, one guilt that hasn't been paid for. For those who believe in Christ. So you could ask that. It seems easy. But it's hard for us. And that's why David is calling us, do not hide your sin. Instead, confess it. You're going to have this struggle in your, in your heart to hide your sin. You're going to learn from others and you're going to see around you, people try their best to hide their sin. So many of the things that we do, including how we dress, is a way of us hiding our sin. Like Adam did immediately after the fall. But we are sinners. And the only covering we have is Christ. The only freedom and joy comes through Him. This is a song that the people of Israel used to sing as they went on to the Day of Atonement where they confessed their sins once a year before God at the temple in Jerusalem. This is a masculine. It's supposed to be meditated. It's supposed to teach us how we ought to live with God. God is acting on us and revealing to us we are not guiltless, nor done with our fight with sin, yet there is one who conquered. His name is Christ. We don't need to hide our sin because in him all of it has been covered. So let no one say, I'm doing fine. No, you're not. Neither am I. None of us are. We're talking about your relationship with the Holy God, not the circumstances of life only, unless by God's grace you are confessing constantly and repenting. By God's grace, this psalm today that we went through revealed to you something that gives you hope and joy, that you can confess your sin. Even though today you just learned you're not perfect. You're not good in everything you do. Yet you have so much hope in Christ. You are a new creature. There is so much good to your life that God is doing through his spirit. Let me give you a picture of what, what living with God is like. So that you will never feel like you're perfect in his sight. Apart from Christ. And let us close with the ending verses without going too deep into them exodus 32 the people of israel just left egypt and they are in front of the mount sinai and god is giving the law and they decide we're too scared to hear god let him not talk to us from this point on and god stops at the 10th commandment and says okay i'm going to give the rest of the laws to moses and once he's doing that, it takes about 40 days and 40 nights. And in that time, they grow bored. They grow tired. They want to worship an idol. So they make an idol. Start worshiping, eating, drinking, dancing to it, whatever. And worshiping it. And the next day, Moses came, broke the tablets. He was furious. He shred, like he destroyed the idol and put it in fire and even put it in water. It's just a mess. You go read it for yourself. The next day after that, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. God literally, first commandment that he told them is, you shall not have other gods before me. Do not make any images to worship them. So he's telling them, you just transgressed the first law. And now I'll go up to the Lord, he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is actually pleading for the people of Israel. And regardless of how that feels like, it reads where Moses is like, Oh, if you're not going to forgive the people of Israel, you know, like, don't forgive me too. Like, just kill me. No, that's not what he's trying to say. Even if it would cost my life, right? I would die on behalf of this people. Take my life and forgive them, is what he's trying to reason with God. 
God's response because he's a just and holy God. But the Lord said, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. It doesn't work like that. Who can do this? Christ. Christ can do that. Moses can't. Exodus 33, 3. Go up to a land. This is God speaking. A little way down. Next chapter. Flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. From that point on, Moses had to go to outside the camp to meet with the Lord in a tent of meeting. There is already a barrier between us and God because no man can stand before him even today in this body. We need to be given a new spiritual body just to stand before him. And sin, while in a covenant with the living God, makes our fellowship with him deadly to us. So nobody is perfect. God is merciful in Christ towards us. He loves us. He has brought himself close to us. James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we draw near in Christ? So David finishes with this caution, with this insight, with this teaching that we should meditate on. And he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly, who's godly? Only the person who trusts in Christ. Only the person who's, who, like, who Christ's righteousness is imputed to, right? Is counted as their own. Whose sin and transgression and iniquity is forgiven, covered. Let anyone who is godly, anyone who believes in Christ, anyone who is a follower of Christ, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. God has given us today. It's a mercy that we are seated and standing here today. Today is the day, David says. There's a good chance somebody may be thinking, that sounds easy enough. All I have to do is keep confessing. So I'll do it tomorrow or later. No. Now. For everything that went in the past, now. For everything that's going to happen one minute later, right away. That's what the Christian life is like. More and more of exalting the beauty and the perfection and the holiness of God. And more and more of us being more and more humbled. Shown to be erroneous. We sin. We have iniquity. We have guilt that is stacked up against us. Only in Christ are we free. Only in Christ are we happy. Peter says, and this is where I want to close, do not overlook this fact, beloved. 2 Peter 3. With the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. After all this, you might be asking, like, I don't see this affecting my life except when we have this kind of long discussions. I'm telling you, it really is affecting your life. Your body, your psychology, and your spirit, your soul and spirit are being destroyed by it. The world is full of examples of people unable to handle their guilt. People that have to play games to keep appearances. But God is saying to us who believe in his name. You are happy. You are blessed. Because Christ has set you free from all those guilts. Set you free from having to play games like that. That do not help you. He has set you free in the body, soul, and spirit. Trust in him. 
open up before him. Reveal the sin and the transgression that you cannot cover yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your love and for your mercy, Abba. I pray that this blessedness, this life of joy that we have received in Christ may be true for us, may be true in us. That being justified by faith in Christ, that we may continue in that faith. Truly, Lord, humble before you, not having a righteousness of our own, not having a righteousness that comes from works or from our, our deeds, Lord, but a humble acceptance of the grace that you give without which we will have no hope. A humility before you knowing that today we stand before you seeking mercy for all the things that are sinful in our lives, Lord. And a hope in you that we will be sanctified from the sin and continue to grow in the faith that we will be less and less prone to sin. Less and less in the first place to be falling for temptation. That in faith that we may stand in holiness and righteousness. Father, we praise your name for what you have done for us in Christ. Honor and glorify your son in our lives. Let us truly cling to him and rejoice in him and rejoice in how perfect he is, how he is the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God is not against us because of what he has suffered. And the blood of Christ is able to cleanse us today, provided that we confess our sins before you. Let his name be known above all of us. Let his glory be shown. Let his beauty be depicted in our hearts and our lives and everything that we are. We thank you, Lord, for this grace and for this time, Lord. Let your spirit lead us onto the rest of worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Yeah, you guys are good. Have a blessed Sunday. This is it. Thank you.